This morning, I want to uh, remind the men that it is not too late to sign up for Ironman. If you uh, take the registration card in your bullet and fill that out and uh, give it to one of the ushers or myself or send it to the office, uh, we'll be sure to get some material, material for you. Uh, we are looking forward to a really, really exciting year in Ironman. New material, new group of guys, <clears throat> and we look forward to seeing God do some amazing, amazing things. This morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 17 would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we begin reading in verse 24. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because... You love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Father, what a a delight it has been to walk uh, slowly through John chapter 17. We thank you for all that we have learned, uh, all that we have learned from the lips of your son, the Lord Jesus. And we uh, greatly anticipate as we conclude this section of scripture, this section of the high priestly prayer, that you would encourage your people, that the flock of God would be uh, nourished, that they would be strengthened, that we would see uh, with greater clarity uh, the, the heart that emerges here of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, God, by the, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit to see what you intend for us to see, to learn, to understand, to embrace. We trust you to do a mighty work all by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I want to begin with a very general question. I hope it's a question that will make you smile, at least for a moment. Here's the question. What is it that makes you happy? What is it that makes you happy? I want you to to think about it, uh, to ponder it, uh, to chew on the question, what is it that truly makes you happy? The great British writer and Christian George Mueller said, Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. It is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. A few years ago, Randy Alcorn wrote a book entitled Happiness. If I were to categorize over the last three years the books that I have read, uh, Randy Alcorn's book, Happiness, would easily be in the top ten. That's my way of saying if you have not yet picked up a copy of Happiness, I would urge you to do so. Here's what Randy says. He says, if I am not happy in God when I see a waterfall or hear a great symphony or see a child playing in a mud puddle, or watch a dog chasing his tail, then I will not be happy in God when I attend church, read the Bible, or pray. 
As creatures, you see, who were made in the image of God, we have the capacity to experience happiness. And there's a simple reason for this, and it's something that I have found shocks many Christians. The reason that we have the capacity to experience happiness is that God himself experiences happiness. The subject of God's happiness, in my mind, is not only a neglected subject, it is one that is avoided by some Christians altogether. I have quoted A.W. Tozer many times in recent years, who reminds us what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. One of the things that we should consider when we think about God, brace yourselves, is the happiness of God. Jonathan Edwards, a writer who, when most people think about his works and his ministry, think about the judgment of God or the wrath of God or that God is angry with sinners. And certainly Edwards wrote about those themes, but he also wrote uh, many, many works that pertain to the happiness of God. Listen to what Edward says. He says, when we speak of God's happiness, the account that we are want to give of it is that God is infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself, in perfectly beholding and infinitely loving and rejoicing in his own Essence and perfections. He goes on to say that the sum of his inclination, love and joy is his love to and his delight in himself. Many of you are familiar with the song, the worship song that has become popular over the years. And the line says, he thought of me above all. The triune God did not think of me above all. Nor does he think of you above all. And Edwards is certainly on the right track here when he says that he rejoices first and foremost in his own essence and perfections. He goes on to say that the sum of all that God is, all God's love, is love to himself. Now, John Piper picks up where Jonathan Edwards left off, and he says this. He says, a great part of God's glory is his happiness. God's glory, Piper says, consists much in the fact that he is happy beyond our wildest imagination. He goes on to say, Jesus lived and died that his joy, God's joy, might be in us and our joy might be full. Therefore, the gospel is the gospel of the glory of the happy God. And I remember when I first read those words many, many years ago, it was almost 20 years ago. And it was a concept that I was completely unfamiliar with and 
My suspicion would be it's a concept that some of you are completely unfamiliar with as well, but we need to remember that God is indeed a happy God, and He delights when His people find their happiness in Him. The title of the message this morning is The Heart Cry of the Son. And the delights and the desires of God come into full view as we look at this concluding portion of John chapter 17, what we refer to as the high priestly prayer. And these words may well be some of the most intimate words that flow from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ as he expresses his desire for his people. I want you to see the closing words of our Savior's prayer. And I trust that this morning, that as we finish out John chapter 17, that as we examine the prayer of Jesus, that his prayer would clear a path for you to worship freely. That God's delight would also be your delight. And so here's the big question this morning. The big question is, exactly what is the heart cry of the Son? Now, in order to answer that very important question, we need to lay some groundwork. If you would indulge me here for a few minutes and and set forth some introductory observations. This will be an extended introduction this morning so that we can get to the very uh, marrow of the question. And there are three important introductory observations that I want you to see. First, I want you to notice just who exactly Jesus' prayer is addressed to. For the mass, vast majority of you, you, you know exactly who the prayer is addressed to. But I want to reorient you. I want you to, to look back over the last several weeks, the last couple of months, as we have studied this prayer. Look with me at verse 1 in John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. We see that Jesus begins the high priestly prayer by addressing God the Father. And then at the end of the high priestly prayer, Jesus concludes by addressing, you guessed it, the Father. Look at verse 24. He says, Father... I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And so we see that the high priestly prayer begins by addressing the Father. He ends the high priestly prayer by making sure that we understand he is communicating with his Father. And then in verse 25, Jesus adds the title, Righteous. He says, O righteous Father. Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Now we know... That God is altogether righteous. When we say that, we recognize that His deeds are righteous. We recognize that His word is righteous. That His judgments are righteous. And all those things have 
have enormous implications for the Christian life. Because God is altogether righteous means this. To question God's plans or His purposes is simply out of the question for a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it should be out of the question for every human being. To challenge God at any point is simply not an option. But you say, but pastor, I don't like that doctrine. Or you say, but pastor, I don't, I don't like the way God did that in the Old Testament. God is altogether righteous. Therefore, we refuse to, to challenge God at any point. Let me remind you that each member of the Trinity... Each member of the Godhead possesses the attributes of God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal from all eternity to all eternity. Yet, and this has been a, a massive debate that has ensued over the last several months and continues to be a debate in the theological world and in churches Even though the Father, the Son, and the Spirit possess equally the attributes of God from all eternity to all eternity, we recognize that the Father in particular has a unique role. Now, I am on a dangerous ledge at this point. And I want to keep returning to to have you understand that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equal. They are equal. The Father possesses the attributes of God. The Son possesses the attributes of God. The Spirit possesses the attributes of God equally. Yet, the Father has a unique role in the Trinity. And you might say that He is supreme among the members of the Godhead. My friend Bruce Ware has said it like this. The Father is in His position and authority supreme among the persons of the Godhead. I want to illustrate that for you by having you turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, the point is driven home. As the psalmist says in verse 5 of Psalm 2, Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in fury, saying, As for me, that is the Father, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. Now, Bruce Ware continues. He says, the point is clear. The father who is above the nations is also above the king whom he sets over the nations. The father's supremacy is both over the nations themselves and over the king whom he places over. Over the nations, close quote. And so Jesus here, once again in John chapter 17, he addresses the righteous father, recognizing his supremacy. And here's the key, submitting. We don't like that word very much, do we? Jesus Christ submits to the authority of God the father. And so first, we have seen that the prayer is addressed to the Father. Second, I want you to notice that the heart cry of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the heart cry of Jesus concerns the elect of God. You see, the elect of God include, as we have learned over and over in this chapter, it includes all those who have been given 
to the Son by the Father. And this is a theme, as I've already indicated, that is repeated time and time again in John chapter 17. There's a little Greek word. It's the word didomai. Didomai. And it's the word that we have translated as given. And I want you to see with me, beginning back in John 17, verse 2, and we're going to kind of rifle through these, all the ways that this word appears. First in verse 2, Jesus says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh, that is the Son has been given authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have, what? Given him. To all whom you have given him. The word didomai, the word translated as given, means a gift. That is to say that God the Father has given a loved gift to the Son when he gave him the elect. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name, that is the name of the righteous Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 7, Jesus says, Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. You get the flavor of what's happening here. Verse 9, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then, finally, in verse 12, Jesus says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so, Jesus addresses his prayer to the Father. We see over and over again that the heart cry of Jesus concerns the elect of God. And the third observation I want to make by way of introduction is that the gift, the gift from the Father, the gift from the Father to the Son in particular is based on God's decree to elect. The gift of all of God's elect from the Father is based on God's decree to elect. So, would you hold your finger in John 17 and turn over a a few books to the right in the pages of your New Testament to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. And I can't wait for the day when we come to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. For now, look with me at chapter 1. Starting in verse 3. I want you to recognize that from verse 3 to verse 14 in the original Greek is one sentence. It's one sentence. It's as if Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is just, he, he is consumed with the truth that he is writing. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us 
in Him. That is, the Father chose us, the elect, in Him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in Him. Why did He do it? In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Would you turn with me also to the book of Second Thessalonians? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Here in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he writes again, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. He elected you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And then would you turn just a few pages over to Second Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and while you're turning to 2 Timothy chapter 1, let me read one passage from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, Scripture says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Who did God choose in the Old Testament? He chose one people group. He did not choose the Babylonians. He did not choose the Hittites. He did not choose any group except Israel. He set His affection, His attention, His love on Israel. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, we read this, that it is God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Amen? This is amazing reality. The fact that God in eternity past chose me in spite of me, that he chose you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that he, he chose you in spite of you, and he did it because his desire was to lavish his love upon you. Look now at John chapter 17. I want to ask once again, what is the heart cry of the Son? Now, Jesus addressed to the Father. Jesus' prayer to the Father involves, mark this word, it involves a desire. Look again at verse 24. He says, Father, I desire. It's a little Greek word that means to take pleasure or delight in something or someone. And I think you would agree with me at this point that Understanding the desires of Jesus, to understand what, what makes Jesus happy, to understand what brings pleasure to our Savior is something that we should be really eager to learn about. Well, here's what we learn. That the heart of the Son 
is turned in the direction of every person who would ever follow him. That the heart of the Son is is drawn to, to you. If you are one of God's elect, his heart's desire is turning his attention to you. The heart of the Son is turned to every person who would ever follow him throughout the course of human history. And the heart cry of the Son involves three very important elements that surface in these remaining verses. Jesus prays here to the righteous Father that all of God's elect would, first of all, be captivated by the presence of God. What is God's prayer to the righteous Father for you and for me? First of all, He prays that all of God's elect would be captivated by the presence of God. Let me summarize it like this. The heart cry of the Son is this. And these are taken directly from verse 24. To be with me. Think about that. Think about that. I want you to think, young people, I want you to think of your your favorite singer. Or your favorite athlete. Or your favorite movie star. Or someone that you respect a lot. And maybe it's someone that you've never met before. And you hear one day that that person would like for you to be with him or her. You think, wow. Are you with me? That, that makes me feel that makes me feel, feel pretty special. Like Kyle, can you imagine if, if you heard today as Russell Wilson prepared, he said, you know, I, I want Kyle Veldman to come and sit in the locker room and I want him to watch the, my, my pregame ritual. He's going to watch what I eat. I'm going to tell him what's on my playlist as I listen through my earbuds. As I, as I, I, I utter a prayer to my God, he's going to pray with me. He says, Kyle, would, would you come and just be with me? You feel pretty good about that? It's like, oh, yeah, you wouldn't turn that down, would you? (laughs) Can I come? (laughs) Listen now, this is the second member of the Godhead. What is his heart's cry? That you would be with me. (sighs) Forget Russell Wilson. This is Jesus. The cry of his heart is that his people would be with him. It's interesting. The psalmist utters a similar prayer. In Psalm 27, he says this. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple for he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me up high upon a rock. Many of you have been in love. If you're older, you will remember the first time you fell in love. If you're younger, you might remember when it happened three weeks ago. Do you remember when you first fell in love and, and you and the person you love have to go your separate ways? And that might mean I live in Everson and the one I love lives in Sumas. It's just like, oh, it's just so hard. I want to be with that person. Or in the, another case... The person you love has to travel overseas. Like my grandfather who was sent during the days of World War II and he was gone for the better part of three years. And you you love that person so much that it hurts. Would you raise your hand if you experienced that? It like you you literally 
four of you. Wow, this is a cold bunch. One more time. Have you ever missed someone so much, the presence of someone so much that your body just hurt? You say, maybe it wasn't physical hurt. It was emotional hurt. I don't care. It's hard. It's really hard. You desire the one you love so much. It's painful. I remember when my wife and I, before we got married, we've been married now for 25 years and like 14 days. Unbelievable. It's great. But we got engaged and I moved up to Olympia and Jereen lived in Portland. And was it four months, Jereen? Three months, four months? That was horrible. You know, I got one of those calendars. What do you do? Every day. You mark the days, right? And you know what? It didn't make the pain go away. I missed her so much. Jesus' desire is that the elect shall dwell forever in his immediate presence in order that they would delight forever in the vision of the glory of God in Christ. A vision which begins right here on earth and reaches its culmination or reaches its apex in heaven. Jesus' desire is that you and me and every follower of Jesus would be with him forever. I want you to think about that. Now I want to ask three point, uh, three application-oriented questions to get you to consider this more. And the first question is, are you captivated more by the pleasures of the world or the presence of God? Are you captivated? And it's, this morning is kind of a time for a, a gut check, time, time for a heart check. Are you captivated more by the pleasures of the world or the presence of God? And I want to clarify this for a moment because sometimes there's misunderstanding when a, a preacher asks a question like this. And some people think it means this. Are you trying to tell me I can't enjoy a good sunset? Are you trying to enjoy me that... And I'll tell you a few things that I like. And some of you will relate and some of you will think I'm crazy. There is nothing like a campana. Some of you know what a campana is. That's two shots of espresso with fresh whipped cream right on the top. In, in a little teeny, like a girly cup. Right? You tip it like this, right? It's very unmanly. Gone. One sip. Anyone? There is nothing like going to Safeco Field and watching a baseball game for three and a half hours. Oh, and having an $8 hot dog and a $10 Pepsi. <laughs> there is nothing like a, a beautiful sunset. There is nothing like enjoying a greasy pizza on Friday night at 8 o'clock. When I talk about those kinds of things... I'm saying those are things that we can enjoy and should enjoy. So are you captivated by the pleasures of the world or the presence of God? What I mean by the pleasures of the world are the world, the flesh, and the devil. C.J. Mahaney puts it like this. Worldliness is a love for this fallen world. It's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. 
More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule and replaces it with our own. It exalts our opinions above God's truth. It elevates our sinful desire for the things of this fallen world above God's commands and promises. And so with that explanation fresh on your mind, I would ask, are you captivated by the pleasures of the world or are you captivated by the presence of the living God? Number two, are you seeking the Lord? Are you seeking the Lord? Deuteronomy 4 says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you search after Him with all your heart and all your soul. We all know Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 very well. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. We talked about that this morning in Veritas. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Psalm 14, 2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. Are you here this morning seeking the Lord? Or do you find yourselves, like we often get, distracted? Distracted by the lure of the the world, the lure of the flesh, and the lure of the devil. And then finally, are you gazing this morning at the beauty of God? Are you gazing at the beauty of God? I heard someone many years ago say in mocking terms that it wasn't very cool for men to talk about the beauty of the Lord. I've never understood that because nothing is more beautiful in all the cosmos than the beauty of the Lord. First Peter chapter 1, 8 and 9 says, Though you have not seen Him, because I'm encouraging us, we should be gazing at the beauty of the Lord, but Peter says, we've not seen Him, but we love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. That is the salvation of your souls. This is Jesus' prayer for his people. His prayer to the righteous Father is that all of God's elect would be utterly captivated by the presence of God. There's a second thing he prays for that also occurs in verse 24. He prays that we would be consumed now by the glory of God. And this is the heart cry of the Son boiled down to this basic reality. He says, I want all of my people to see my glory. You see, the Son addresses, or the Son rather, desires that all believers shall gaze for all eternity on Him. That is, on the radiance of His divine attributes as these are reflected in His exalted human nature. William Hendrickson goes on to say that we are to see, we are to be transformed in character. The inexpressible joy, the unquenchable love, the perfect peace of all those who enter into the rest that remains for the people of God. This is the glory which the Father has given the Son. John MacArthur helpfully adds that in God's gracious plan, believers will not only see Christ's glory, 
But according to the book of Philippians chapter 3, we will also share in that glory. Throughout all eternity, the Son of the redeemed, as they behold the glory of Jesus Christ, our song will be this, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We will sing out to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. My question this morning, in this postmodern culture that we are trapped in, is have you set your affection on the glory of God? We have learned about the desire of Jesus for his people. My question this morning is this. How about your desires? What is, what is your chief desire? What needs to shift now in your affections? Last night we went to see some friends. And on the way to meeting our friends, I was, Doreen and I were listening to the new Chris Tomlin CD. And can I just, I don't know know if you're allowed to do this in a sermon. Thank you, God, for Chris Tomlin. What a guy. A guy who writes God-centered, gospel-saturated songs that glorify no one but the Trinity. And I was just thinking in the back of my mind, this is what it's all about. This is it. And those are the moments that we need to have more often than not when our our gaze is attracted to the glory of God, when we are consumed by the glory of God. And so I would ask once again, what needs to shift in your affections? Where does repentance need to take hold in your life? And so in the quietness of your heart this morning, I want to have you just to to think, to, to ponder for a moment and, and ask God, God, what is it that needs to change in my life? Where do my priorities need to be readjusted? Am I spending too much time with something that doesn't honor you? Am I spending time with something that doesn't honor you at all that I, I need to obliterate, that I need to blow up, that I need to, to utterly get out of my life? Are my priorities all mixed up? And have I, have I been looking through stained glass windows? I need to open up those windows so that I can gaze afresh and be consumed with the glory of God. That is Jesus' second prayer, that we would be consumed by his glory. There's a third prayer that emerges, and that is that we would be compelled by the love of God. To boil down the heart cry of the Son would be to simply say that your love, he prays to the Father now, that your love may be in them. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And what I want you to walk away from this morning is this. It's something that will be brand new for some of you. For those of you who have heard this from me or someone else time and again, my prayer this morning, it would be like 
brand new all over to you because it's something we need to turn to again and again. And that is that the same love that has existed from all eternity among the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Stop there just for a moment. Think about that love. The, the perfect unity, the perfect harmony, the perfect fellowship, no bickering, no slander, no libel, no hurt feelings. It's something none of us can relate to. Perfect harmony and love that has existed between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The same love that the Father has for the Son and the Spirit, He has for you. I can't take it in. It is absolutely mind-blowing. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That is the living God has this this white-hot love for you. How can you not smile when you hear that? That His love for you is the same love that has been in the, the perfect fellowship among the members of the Godhead. I would ask you this morning, have you taken time? Have you taken time to contemplate the love that God has for you? I remember I was sitting on the front porch several years ago reading a book by one of my favorite authors. And he was expounding on the attributes of God. And I didn't even care who was in the neighborhood or who was watching or what the consequences would be. I just went, Have you ever just done that? Driving down the road, sitting in your chair at home, all of a sudden you realize that the, the same love that the Father has for the Son and the Spirit, from all eternity to all eternity, He has that for you. It kind of makes our problems just kind of go, bye-bye. He has that love for you. Have you taken time to contemplate that? And are you compelled, truly compelled by the love of God this morning? Well, the delight of Jesus that we've addressed is unveiled in the closing words of the high priestly prayer. And we could summarize it as such, that the heart cry of the Son is that all of God's elect would be captivated by the presence of God, consumed by the glory of God, and compelled by the love of Almighty God. The heart cry of the Son reminds us at this point, that this is not our home. This is our temporary residence, that our, our home is in heaven with our Savior. Philippians 3 verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews thirteen fourteen says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. That's really one of the main points in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that Christian, the traveler, is in pursuit of the city where he will be, be with his Savior for all eternity. First Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners 
as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The heart cry of the son now reminds us to focus on what is eternal. Jesus reminds us to not lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth or rust destroy but, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there also will your heart be also. The heart cry of the Son reminds us to, to center our affections on the living God. It reminds us to keep our priorities straight. It reminds us that waking up a little early in the morning to spend time in God's Word, that's a small price to pay. It's a small price to pay. And here's the big question as we close this morning. Is the heart cry of the Son in sync with your desires? Is the heart cry of the Son in sync with your desires? Jesus' prayer is that God's people would be captivated by that which has captivated Him for all eternity. That is the presence of Almighty God. Jesus' prayer is that God's people would be consumed by that which consumes Him for all eternity, namely the glory of God. And Jesus' prayer, finally, is that God's people would be compelled by that which has compelled Him from all eternity to all eternity, namely the love of God. I want to close by making a statement that may come to you like getting cold water splashed on your face. And may God use it to, to do a good work in your life. My question is, will you focus your attention this morning on worldliness or will you worship? Will you focus your attention on worldliness or will you worship? And it stood out to me as I was preparing for this message that the antidote for worldliness is the cross. The antidote for worldliness is the cross. C.J. Mahaney says, only through the power of the cross of Christ can we successfully resist the seduction of the fallen world. How do we walk away from the world? How do we walk away from the flesh? How do we walk away from the lure of the devil? We do so not in our own strength. We do so by turning our attention to the cross, by remembering what Jesus accomplished for the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him throughout all of human history. My question this morning is, is your affection, is your desire in sync with the desire of the Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, once again for the journey through John 17. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for uh, setting this truth before us. We thank you for your willingness, not only in eternity past, but in real time and space, you, you went to the cross. You lived a life that was without guilt, without sin, without stain. You perfectly kept uh, the law of God. You did what none of us could ever do. 
And you did it for the glory of the Father, and you did it for us. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his completed work on the cross, to everyone who would ever believe. This morning, some of you may not be in a position of believing. You have never turned your attention to the Savior. You have never repented of your sins. And today you realize that apart from Jesus, apart from his completed work on the cross, that you are under his wrath. That if you were to die today, that you would, you would spend eternity in hell. My plea to you is that you would cry out to the Savior. That you would cry out to Jesus that you would turn from your sin and that you would turn to the Savior, that you would ask him to forgive you of all your sins and that you would invite him to take residence in your heart and that you would walk with him from now until the end of your life. Would you call out to him? Would you admit that you're a sinner? Would you ask him to deliver you from the power of sin and the penalty of sin? And one day we recognize that you will be delivered from sin's very presence. For those of us who are walking with Jesus, my plea this morning would be that you would have desires that are in sync with the desires of the Son. And that you would take this moment to, to do a, a spiritual audit. That you would allow the Holy Spirit to come in with a theological searchlight. And that he would point out what needs to be eliminated what needs to be adjusted, what needs to be changed in your life so that your affections would rest squarely on the God that you're called to love, on the God that you're called to serve. Father, we ask that you would do a mighty work in this place. We ask that you would be tugging on hearts by the power of your spirit, uh, decisions would be made that would impact lives, that would impact families. And as we come to the table this morning, we would remember uh, the sacredness of this time, that the elements before us remind us and represent the, the body of Jesus and represent the blood of Jesus, and that we uh, partake of these elements to remember his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. May this time of worship as we continue uh, be a special time of worship as we submit ourselves to you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.